and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, what on earth was Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg thinking when he told podcaster Joe Rogan last week, quote, the FBI came to us, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, you, just so you know, you should be on high alert. We thought there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump that's similar to that, unquote. He was referring, of course, to the Hunter Biden laptop, news of which Facebook and other media suppressed during the 2020 US presidential campaign. This is an admission that a government agency, via Zuckerberg of course, not only broke the First Amendment, but did so to influence the outcome of an election. The fallout from this is going to be entertaining to watch. For years, the elite establishment has tried to convince ordinary people that their skepticism about big government and big tech was just a conspiracy theory, that they were the crazy ones. These illusions regarding all sorts of powerful forces are now falling apart under the bright light of common sense, an abundance of which you will find right here on ADH-TV. The next few weeks are going to be very interesting as some media companies and politicians perform contortionist backflips. It's going to be better than the Olympics, so bring it on. We have a cracking show for you tonight. We've got the wonderful Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampajinpa-Price to talk about what's really happening in Indigenous communities and in the Dondale Detention Centre in Darwin. You won't want to miss that. And the energetic Gideon Rosner from the Institute of Public Affairs to discuss the forthcoming election in Victoria. Plus Woke Watch and much more. So let's get into it. A poll published on the weekend has found Victorians will probably re-elect the Dan Andrews government in the state election in November. This is despite the Andrews government being described yesterday by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott as, quote, probably one of the worst governments Australia has ever had, unquote. Abbott was being diplomatic. Most reasonable people would remove the probably and add expletives to describe the regime that awarded itself a pay rise while unnecessarily locking down its citizens for two years, outlawed dissent, shot peaceful protesters with rubber bullets, contributed to the death of almost 800 people in the hotel quarantine program, and is now embarking on policies that will destroy the state's economy. If he's re-elected, Andrews will assume a mandate to accelerate the next and possibly final phase of his catastrophic reign, introducing expensive, unreliable renewable energy onto the long-suffering people and businesses of Victoria. A blind man can see the destitution this will cause because it's already happening in Britain and Europe. Even middle-class families in Britain will be driven into fuel poverty by next winter. The poor, including pensioners and single parents, will freeze in the dark. The price of electricity in France today is 24 times the average it was during the decade to 2020. This is what happens when governments foolishly pursue net zero targets and close down coal, gas and nuclear power plants. Andrews isn't alone in pursuing this in Australia, but he is the most ambitious. Andrews knew earlier this year that if Labor won the federal election in May, incoming Energy Minister Chris Bowen would announce forests of offshore windmills around the nation. 
So he beat Bowen to it by announcing in March a plan to produce two gigawatts of energy from offshore windmills by 2032, which will supposedly power one and a half million homes as long as the wind's blowing. He didn't say how many windmills this would require though, so allow me to fill in the details. The latest offshore windmills produce 15 megawatts, so he will need 130 of them. They have a rotor span of 236 metres. That's 70 metres longer than the MCG playing field. The spacing convention is three rotor diameters apart facing the wind and seven rotor diameters apart into the wind. So for argument's sake, if they are arranged in 13 rows of 10 facing the predominant wind direction, they will take up an area of, wait for it, 21 kilometres long by 7 kilometres wide, or 147 square kilometres of ocean. No wonder Dan left that detail off his press release. And 2 gigawatts is just the beginning. Andrews wants offshore windmills to produce 9 gigawatts by 2040 and 13 gigawatts by 2050, requiring 6 times the area of ocean. Windmills have a production life, a productive life of 20 to 25 years. So by, by then, the original 130 will have already been replaced. While it's pursuing this expensive, unreliable form of energy, traditional power sources are being discouraged. There's been a ban on onshore gas exploration since 2012 in Victoria. In 2016, Lakes Oil, which was part owned by Gina Reinhart, sued the Victorian government in the Supreme Court because the ban had caused the company to write off $95 million in exploration investment. It also claimed $2.6 billion in lost profits. A decision was handed down the next year and Lakes Oil lost. At the same time, the state government, spooked by threats by minor Green parties in the 2018 state election, legislated a ban on all types of onshore gas exploration. The message to resource companies was clear. Victoria doesn't want your business. This is an impression that Andrews has done little to dispel because, you know, fossil fuels cause droughts and floods and climate change and all the rest of it. So it's no surprise that when Andrews quietly lifted the moratorium for conventional onshore gas last year, he wasn't inundated by applications for exploration permits. If they were ever in doubt that anything had changed, he made it very clear in June this year, saying, quote, the experts tell us that there's very low likelihood that there's significant onshore conventional gas reserves in our state. That's not a politician's view, that's what the experts tell us, unquote. Well, the experts neglected to remind Andrews that energy prices for his constituents have tripled since last year and that a gas shortage in Victoria led the national operator to step in and use emergency measures to guarantee supply of electricity in the state. Andrews' response is to simply ban new homes from connecting to gas, as if that's going to solve anything. Andrews is determined for Victoria to follow Europe down the road to energy poverty for consumers and crippling energy bills for businesses. Matthew Guy, the Liberal leader, is not offering much of an alternative. Like Scott Morrison, who lost this year's federal election, he too has jumped aboard the net zero bandwagon. 
but he at least is having a bet each way. Last week he said, quote, we'll unlock our gas supplies. We don't believe in banning gas, unquote. Well, Victorians have an appallingly poor choice in November between an incumbent premier who has done his best to lock up the state and drive it broke and a feckless pretend liberal who is completely oblivious to the crisis facing the state. Guy might be one of the worst liberal leaders of his generation, but unfortunately he's the only hope Victorians have. If they re-elect Andrews, they may as well switch the lights out in Victoria for good. Well, at its least destructive, wokeism is just a vague idea that achieves little more than a fleeting feeling of moral vanity. You can count buying Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which featured on Woke Watch last week, as a prime example. The feeling of virtuousness you get from buying a cone of Ben and Jerry's lasts less time than it takes to eat it. But when governments get involved in wokeism, the results can be far worse and last a lot longer. There are no better examples of this than governments that sign treaties with their own citizens. In Victoria, the government last week passed a law to create a body that will oversee negotiations for a treaty between the state and Indigenous representatives. And in Queensland, the government is on a, quote, path to treaty, which will apparently lead to self-determination and equality. Someone should tell the Queensland government that self-determination and equality already exist under the legal traditions it supposedly upholds and represents. The Victorian Treaty Authority will act as an independent umpire over negotiations between traditional owners and the state government. But I'm not sure how independent it is going to be. Marcus Stewart, who calls himself a Nira Ilham Bullock man, told The Guardian the authority will hold negotiations that avoid bringing in lawyers and instead they will be, quote, having the conversations our way, unquote. Now, there's nothing wrong with avoiding lawyers, but what does he mean by our way? What will happen if there is a dispute, as there always are during negotiations? If either side can't resort to legal precedent, what will they resort to? We should probably be told before someone gets hurt. Anyway, why are these governments signing treaties with their own citizens? A treaty is generally believed to be an agreement between representatives of two nations who are duly authorised to make such an agreement. Do states have that authority? Do the Indigenous representatives? Where will all this lead? Hopefully, Marcus Stewart's promise not to resort to lawyers will continue when this talk of treaties reaches the next phase, which is inevitably lawsuits for compensation. Well, energy is just one of the issues in the Victorian election coming up in November. If Dan Andrews and Lily D'Ambrosio, who is his Minister for Energy, Environment, Climate Change and, God help us, solar homes, are allowed another four years, they will force tens of thousands of people into energy poverty and drive businesses broke with power bills. The polls are suggesting Andrews is heading for a victory, but those polls were taken before news broke that might mark a turning point in this campaign. 
There's a class action being pursued by businesses affected by the lockdown in Victoria during the COVID pandemic. Their argument is this. Had the government not bungled its program to keep infected people in hotels in early 2020, which when it failed led to 768 deaths and 18,000 infections, Victoria would not have had to go into a second lockdown. That lockdown destroyed countless businesses, not to mention broke up families, increased the suicide rate and postponed crucial schooling for years for a generation of kids. Last Friday, Victorian Supreme Court Justice John Dixon said the government's argument that the case should be struck out was invalid. And the case will go ahead. There are currently more than 1,300 businesses signed up to this case, and it is open to tens of thousands more should they meet the conditions of the suit. If the class action wins, the payout from the state could be in the billions of dollars. This is bad news for the Andrews government on the eve of an election. How bad? Well, let's bring in Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs to find out. Gideon, welcome back to the show. Great to be here as always, my friend. How's it going? I'm, I'm good, mate. Well, good up here in New South Wales, but we want to know how life is in Victoria these days. Now, let's, let's wind the clock back a little bit because you led the campaign to open Melbourne back up from the early days of the lockdown, going out onto the deserted streets to record videos, pleading with the government to let people back out of their homes. Now, just remind us, Gideon, what was it like recording those videos? And do they, do they, when you look back on them, do they seem a bit surreal now? Um, it, I think the reactions to the video seem surreal now that I think about it because, yeah, as you said, uh, the IPA was the first organisation in Australia to call for the end to lockdowns or at least the unwinding of a lot of the harsher lockdown measures. Uh, I was the person who was in the videos and led the charge in that regard. Um, and at the time, I was universally howled down. I mean, there were stories galore about the video. I was slagged off on Twitter and everything else. The funny thing was, though, in my the, the, the public comments were bad, but in my direct messages in Twitter and in private emails and so on, I had so many people saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for saying what I want to say but can't or nobody to listen and so on. Um, but going back to the decision to record those videos, I remember the, I do remember the day the decision was made to take the plunge, and that was early on. This is when it really was two weeks to flatten the curve. I went out for my hourly permitted hour of daily exercise around the block. And I walked past all these stores and bars. You know, I lived in Spencer Street, just in the, the CBD here in Melbourne in Ground Zero. And everything was shut. It was a ghost town. It was dystopian. I got home feeling so depressed, morbidly depressed about what was about to happen. At that moment, John Roskam, my now former boss, called me and said, now this is a bit out there, but we're thinking about coming out against the lockdown. And I said, John, can I please be the face of it? He said, I was hoping you would. And we recorded the video and, and I didn't think much of it at the time. I wasn't expecting the blowback, but I didn't care when I got it um, because I knew I was, it, it was important that somebody spoke out. And I was glad to have that infinitesimal role in getting the dominoes falling of more and more people who came out subsequently and, and said lockdowns are a bad idea. Well, the truth always vindicates, doesn't it, God, doesn't it Gideon? The, so, well, anyway, does, the, the, pan, the, well, sure. the pandemic revealed to us an authoritarian streak in our governments that, that most of us didn't know existed, and also a willingness among many Australians to do what they're told without questioning it. 
Gideon, do you think that's changed? Unfortunately, I don't think it has. Um, you know, well, the most amazing thing about lockdowns, other than the fact that they happened, I mean, it was such an unusual time, if we remember it, we're going about our lives now like nothing ever happened. We are, we are pretending like this never existed. Uh, and we, we're going along with this terribly fictitious idea that Australia did well out of the pandemic. No, we didn't, not in terms of any of the features you would see. We avoided deaths and sicknesses and, and the, the, the overwhelming of the hospital system, which never really happened anywhere, that we saw uh, then. But all we did was kick the can down the road. I mean, 10,000 people a week are getting the coronavirus. Do you ever hear about that? Uh, I don't. Uh, because we, we shut down Melbourne over six cases once upon a time. So do we still have our authoritarian streak? Yes, I think we do. We still pe see people outside wearing masks in the middle of the street. Uh, we are still going along with this fiction that what we did was helpful or necessary. And there's been no contrition, no accountability, no acknowledgement uh, about what we went through. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about that accountability, that this, yeah. this class action could be quite, quite significant if the, uh, if the class action wins. But I'd like to see it in the context of this election. How much damage do you think it could cause the government during the campaign? I think it all depends. I think it, it depends on what the media stories are coming out of it. Uh, I think we may not even see a verdict by the time we get to the polls. Don't forget the election is like, what, three months away, uh, almost to the day now. So uh, the Andrews government will obviously be doing all they can to delay the uh, that trial to drag it out past the election date. Then there's the fact that unless they manage to subpoena documents or get something explosive coming out of that court uh, trial process, most people have actually made up their minds about the lockdown one way or the other at the moment anyway. We know how bad it was. The odd media story might remind people of that, but I don't see it shifting the dial too much uh, based on what we know so far. Well, that's alarming. Anyway, that's only one issue for the government that the government's facing, I should say. It's, it's handling of the state's energy supply is another one. Now, do, you th do, you, do Victorians realise that Andrews is forcing them down the road that has already led to energy poverty and crippling fuel bills in Europe? I don't think so. Or I think they are uh, to a certain extent. I don't think it's, it's reached popular saturation yet, but I think people know at least instinctively that the government's plans for energy going forward, and I'm not just talking about the Andrews government's plans, although they're certainly one of the worst offenders, but there is this realisation that this green hysteria is causing us unacceptable trade-offs in terms of energy prices. And, and the IPA did research on this earlier this year. Back in June, we asked uh, in a survey whether people want a pause on net zero given the crippling energy shortages that were at that point uh, really rearing their ugly heads around the country. And we found that over 60% uh, of people, 61% of people said, yes, we need at least a temporary pause on this net zero business uh, while we shore up our energy supplies. And just 17% disagreed with the remainder being unsure. What that tells me is the tide is slightly starting to move against this stuff. And as energy crisis becomes worse and people are paying more on power bills and so on, I think people will come to the realisation that the government is doing more harm than good in terms of the green energy revolution and so on. Well, the, 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 the sort of headline act of this green energy revolution is offshore windmills, as I call them. I mean, they're commonly known as wind turbines, but they're just windmills to me. Now, as I said in my, I as I said in my editorial earlier, Andrews wants to start with two gigawatts of electricity from offshore wind. Uh, by 2032. This will require 147 square, square kilometres of ocean. And by 2050, he wants six times that. 
Gideon, will Victorians like this when they see it cluttering their ocean views? <laughs> Spoken like a true Sydney side of Fred, uh, we don't have the same class of people living in close proximity to the ocean. I know that up there in New South Wales, if Dominic Perrottet put a row of windmills, and I call them windmills too, you know, Simon Holmes took me to task on Twitter saying, ah, they're turbines, not wind. That's not the point. The point is that they are rudimentary and crappy technology, but I digress. Um, I know that if Dominic Perrottet put a row of them in Sydney Harbour, there'd be all manner of uproar. Here, not so much uh, among the wealthier landed elites. Um, but what I will say is that there are all sorts of issues that these windmills are causing. One, communities don't want them in their backyard. That's why they're building, in the middle of it, building them in the middle of the ocean. But transmitting the power around the state is becoming an issue too. We are seeing enormous protests. Uh, a few months ago, we saw tr about 200 tractors parked in the middle of Ballarat to protest the Osnet uh, Western transmission line going through parts of Western Victoria. Now, that's just over one one transmission line that's going to cut through a lot of properties. We need about 20 in this country to make re renewable energy remotely viable. So I think the, the more people's rights are infringed upon, the more we're going to see pushback. But, you know, do those people matter to the people in charge? Do they matter to the governing elites? They're just, you know, people from Ballarat. We'll see. Well, let's talk about the opposition now. Matthew Guy last week said he would back more use of gas, but he's still promising net zero by 2050, which... <laughs> Which bet is he really backing Gideon or is he just having an each way? I think he has having, is having an each way. I think he's gotten the right the second time, though, and it is a step in the right direction. I suspect the announcement of net zero by or the, of 50% um, cuts to emissions by 2030, which for the record is actually higher than Anthony Albanese's 2030 target. I think that didn't move the dial in terms of the focus groups and so on, that fell flat. So now he's actually doing what he should have done to begin with and say that, you know, Victoria not only bans the drilling for gas, it, it bans exploration. We can't even look for the stuff in Victoria. That is a complete absurdity, particularly given Victoria is about to run out of gas, if you uh, believe the uh, energy market operator. So I think it's a step in the right direction. I think he knows that by now, surely, but you can't out-left the left on things like climate change. I think this is really good, but he has to scream it from the rooftops from now until polling day uh, to get some traction on it. You just don't get the feeling that he understands what the crisis is about. That he, he, he just, Matthew Guy doesn't seem to understand that Victoria is facing a serious crossroads, don't you think? Uh, maybe he does and maybe he doesn't. Uh, only Matthew Guy can answer that question. But at the very least, I think he's misread the politics. Uh, I think it's a, the same failed strategy that didn't serve Scott Morrison when he embraced net zero, uh, that didn't suit Zap Kirkup when he went further than Mark McGowan at the last WA state election uh, in terms of green energy and so on. Although, you know, Zach Kirkup's a special case because he basically went to the election saying, we know we're going to lose, just don't hurt us too badly. But Deb Fricklington made the same mistake. Stephen Marshall made the same mistake. It does not work. Uh, what he, the, the, the political impetus here is to pick up on the fact that, you know, and I, I have this discussion with my wife at home. You know, we talk about, should we be putting the heater on for three hours as opposed to four, uh, because that's expensive energy that'll come out of the wash. People are really hurting out there. And I think people know that more windmills is not the answer. Well, let's talk now about Sluggate. This is the case of a catering business called iCook that was shut down in 2019 by order of Acting Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton after a health inspector allegedly planted a slug in the firm's kitchen. 41 people lost their jobs. Ian Cook, the owner of the company, is suing the government in the Supreme Court for lost profits of $50 million. And he's now running as an independent against Andrews in his seat of Mulgrave, 
which Andrews holds with a margin of 8.2%. Cook said on the weekend, quote, after three years of seeing firsthand how corruption is devastating Victoria, I can't sit by and let Daniel Andrews pretend that he is fit for office, unquote. Gideon, will this message cut through in, I mean, not only in Mulgrave, but across the, across the whole state? Well, Mulgrave is a pretty interesting seat uh, because, yes, it does have a margin of about 8%, as you said, but that's about double what it was prior to that. Uh, so it is at a high watermark. And, you know, leaders' seats are lightning rods of discontent. So couple that with the other independents and the freedom parties that are running, you might see preferences making it tight for Andrews, though I still expect him to win. More broadly, though, that's the question of will the anti-Dan vote be enough to knock him over? And the problem is when you look at where the anti-Dan vote is likely to fall. It is among lower socioeconomic groups. It is among working people uh, who bore the brunt of the terrible, terrible effects of lockdowns. Uh, those people are located or re reside in seats that Labor hold by a strong margin. So if you look back at the last federal election, uh, which was in May, obviously, you can see that the anti-Dan vote was a factor in Victoria in terms of federal seats, but it occurred in safe Labor seats, like the seat of Cornwall, for example, uh, out of Western Melbourne, safe, safe, safe Labor. Labor got a 10% swing against it on primary votes that went to One Nation and the United Australia Party in the main, but it wasn't enough to knock off the sitting member and it went from a, a margin of 12% to about 6% and so on. So votes will be lost. Will they be lost in the right areas? I don't know. Uh, and especially because the Liberal Party will have so many issues picking up seats and retaining its existing seats uh, based on the affront from the Teals and the uh, you know problems with the campaign and the party. I'm not sure that it'll be enough. Well, finally, Gideon, before you go, just very quickly, the state government's going to blow $270 million to pay the university fees of nurses and midwives entering degree courses now. This won't solve the current crisis in the healthcare, in healthcare industry because those workers won't graduate for years yet. Meanwhile, pointless vaccine mandates still apply in the healthcare industry in Victoria. Gideon, shouldn't they just lift the mandates and let unvaccinated workers go back to work? Of course they should. They should never have kicked people out of the workforce to begin with, uh, especially now that even Brett Sutton has indicated that uh, the, the, these vaccines uh, don't prevent the spread and don't prevent you from getting sick and so on. But, you know, we, we, there's no point really relitigating all of that. Uh, but, of course, it's a much more election-friendly, uh, you know, announcement to say, we're going to give, you know, free degrees to nurses and teachers and other uh, workers that people, you know, like and are electorally popular and so on. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to go back on the anti-vaccine mandate or the vaccine mandate stuff, especially when there was so much scapegoating about uh, anti-vaxxers by Daniel Andrews just a year ago. Oh, it's not our fault we're still in lockdown. Blame those anti-vaxxers. We can only go back to work when uh, a certain number of people are vaccinated. So Andrews can't go back on the scapegoating of that era. I don't expect him to. I think we're just going to see uh, plenty more overinflated degrees and uh, plenty more cash given to training outfits. What else is new? <laughs> Nothing new under the sun, Gideon. And Dan Andrews will continue to roll on. It's terrible. Anyway, Gideon, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. As I said last week, the Don Dale Youth Detention Centre in Darwin is one of the most shameful institutions in Australian history. It last made nationwide headlines in 2016 when ABC TV's Four Corners broadcast an invest investigation into the centre which included a photo 
of a teenager chained to a chair in a cell with a hood over his head. It led to a Royal Commission which recommended the place be shut down. It wasn't. Instead, the Northern Territory Government passed a law requiring an independent inspector visit the facility once a month and advise the Minister of any concerns. Last week, the ABC reported what it found in documents obtained through Freedom of Information that, quote, between April last year and June this year, when a total of 28 visits should have occurred, only two were undertaken, unquote. This was because of the COVID pandemic. During one of those two visits, the observer saw blood smeared on a wall of a cell, which had not been cleaned because the observer was told there weren't enough staff. If that's any indication of what is going on in Dondale, then we need another Royal Commission. Nobody suggests that dealing with these kids is easy. These are teenagers who have often known nothing but violence, alcoholism, loneliness and crime. That they wind up in a correctional facility should be no surprise. The causes of their problems start at birth, which is an issue Australia will need to address one day if it ever hopes to narrow the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. That white kids are routinely rescued from such deprivation and black kids are not is racist by any definition. But woke politics has placed huge obstacles in front of solving that issue. The least we could expect, though, is that the nation knows what happens to these kids behind the bars of Don Dale, and we don't. My next guest is Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampajinpa-Price, who will have some opinions about this. Jacinta, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Fred. Jacinta, there was an enormous amount of controversy about Don Dale in 2016, then a Royal Commission, but since then, nothing. Is it possible that conditions inside the centre are now even worse than they were when the nation was up in arms about it? Well, you know, we've, we've got a Northern Territory Labor government in place now who like to keep things, keep, keep, keep a lid on things so we don't know the true extent of the sorts of issues um, certainly that, that are going on within Dondale and certainly within the wider community uh, along a, a, a raft of sort of issues uh, and particularly concerning young Indigenous people in the Northern Territory. So it really wouldn't surprise me that we don't know um, what's going on, the full extent of the situation uh, within Dondale. The, um, the Royal Commission that was called, I think, you know, was on the back of a Four Corners program, um, which also, that, that program was also out to, um, was strategically placed in the lead up to a particular, uh, a, the Territory election at the time. Um, Dondale has had issues for a long time. Uh, it still clearly has issues. Uh, and there are many who, um, many protesters who argue that the place should be shut down, but the same protesters does, don't consider the reasons why these kids end up um, incarcerated as they do, and that preventative measures really need to be the focus to ensure that these kids don't end up in a position where they are locked up in a place like Dondale. Well, in your words, what are the causes for these kids winding up at Dondale? Well, you only have to go for a walk even during the day um, in a place like Alice Springs where you see groups of kids running around in packs uh, who aren't at school. They're either not at school or they're out very late at night, sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning. Their home situations are not 
not working for them. Um, these kids, you know, Indigenous kids in in parts in these parts of this part of Australia, we have the highest rates of domestic violence. Uh, we have the highest rates of child sexual abuse. We have all those issues um, which are causing our kids to be on the streets and then to end up engaged in criminal activity, um, which leads them to being locked up. There's a whole there's a whole mess going on right now in the Northern Territory. So you've also got a situation where because it's understood by some young people that, you know, former detainees ended up being compensated for things that occurred to them and, and that the government paid them out large amounts of money, that some kids are in fact thinking that this is a way to get their hand on get their hands on um, large amounts of money uh, and will behave in ways that will lead them to incarceration. And then while incarcerated, will behave in ways that they feel, um, you know, you know, as, as sad as it is, um, that lead to things like, you know, attempted suicide and those sorts of things. That's one of the factors around that. But it's obviously also the fact that these kids, when the, when the families are failing them, the system is failing them also because the priority is that these kids remain within kinship care. Now, you know, I'm not saying all Aboriginal people are incapable, but what I'm saying is that in the Northern Territory specifically, a lot of families are, uh, have got a lot of dysfunction going on in them. So you can remove a kid um, and place them with family who are still connected, who are also still connected to the dysfunction. And that is where um, that is where the system is failing these kids because it's maintaining them within that, this that idea kinship, of... But just into that, that, that kinship thing, that's related to the stolen mm. generation. There is a paranoia among mm. officials about removing Indigenous kids from their families regardless of the circumstances. But you're saying by leaving them there is causing them immense harm. That's right, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, it's causing them immense harm. Uh, you know, we should be recognising these kids are Australian citizens. They're Australian kids and not 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 separating them along the lines of their race and suggesting that maintaining them within their racial group is beneficial is more beneficial to them what we've got to do is uphold their human rights and say who's going to uphold their human rights as a carer for these kids and i don't care who it is whether it is another indigenous person whether it is you know a person of asian um background it doesn't matter as long as that person is upholding their human rights as a child and their needs are being met then that's what should be the priority Just not in, keeping them in dysfunction based on their race you, you said the previous royal commission had political motivations and I, I did say that you know maybe we need another royal commission but what will it really take to fix this mess jacinta <laughs> honesty, honesty and preventative measures so these kids don't end up in these circumstances, basically. And I guess it is, it's not good enough that there aren't enough staff um, that are working in a place like Dondale. I mean, these kids have got a raft of, um, you know, issues that they are dealing with personally. Um, you know, they need trauma-informed people taking care of them. They need they need to be able to also gain skills while they're in there um, it's so they have a little bit of self-worth as well, so they have a little bit of understanding of what they're capable of as individuals. Uh, and when so when they do come out, they've got something to work toward, to go toward. Um, but there is a lot, there should, perhaps there should be another Royal Commission. The only problem is that when these Royal Commissions um, occur, the recommendations 
that come about from them aren't necessarily adhered to uh, either, as we've seen with the current situation, uh, and that um, COVID shouldn't be an excuse, um, you know, for for the responsibilities of this territory government, uh, well, for them to fulfil their responsibilities well, it, to these young people. That's a, It was a pretty flimsy excuse, really. I mean, you know, COVID was a, a virus that most people survived from, and here we're talking about the well-being of some of the least advantaged people in the country. I mean, it's a no-brainer, really. But let's <clears throat> let's switch to uh, the rental arrangements in Indigenous communities. These are houses owned by the Territory <laughs> Government. Firstly, the Territory Government recently wiped off $70 million in unpaid rent. What was that about, Jacinta? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's got too much for the government to follow up on on those individuals who um, who were late in their arrears with such a build up that they decided it's just all too much. Let's just swipe this um, this rental debt that exists. But what I find really um, confusing about it all is that they go ahead and increase rent after swiping people's debt. I mean. I don't know if that was the mechanism to then be able to say, okay, now that we've wiped your debt, your, debt, your rental debt um, arrears, we're going to stick up the rent. Uh, yeah, and, and you know what? A lot of these places, <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be paying that much rent for some of these places. Well, that, that's that's what I was getting to because uh, we have to give the ABC credit for this as well because they seem to be the only news organisation following this up from outside the territory. And that is that the, the Territory government is now, instead of charging by the house, it's charging by the room. And these, these aren't normal domestic situations, are they, Jacinta? Can you, can you just explain to us what sort of effect this is going to have? Firstly, the rent goes up. But, I mean, the, the, the occupants in these houses are often pretty transitory and outside the system anyway. It, this is really mm. serious. For someone who's on Centrelink and has, you know, mm. five grandkids moving through the house and has a five-bedroom house, five house, this is kind of devastating, isn't it? It is. It is when you think also of the situation where, you know, a lot of people have um, overcrowding going on because they have family members who do come in from communities, use their place as a sort of home base while they're staying in the, in town to do their shopping and all those sorts of things and then moving on again. So there's those sorts of pressures um, going on. You know, these, these individuals um, are surviving off welfare payments, which, you know, they're barely surviving on as they are without having to then add, you know, another $200 a week uh, to their rent. I, I'm really confused about it all. I don't know what this uh, Territory Labor government is trying to achieve by this and whether the standard of living in some of those houses um, is, is actually just, it's justifiable to actually be able to um, increase the rent by well, that, that much, given a, the standard of living in some of those houses. Yeah, yeah that's a very good point. I mean, the, the rent's going up, but can you describe what these houses are like? Uh, they're, they're, they're brick homes um, with not much to them, you know, with very simple sort of, um, you know, steel um, sinks in the kitchen, in, in, the, um, in, in, the, in the bathroom and, and laundry areas. They're very basic sort of uh, homes and, and quite a lot of the time it takes a very long time for anything to be fixed um, by the Department of Housing uh, for a lot of the tenants. So, they've, you know, they've got a lot of issues going on uh, with those sorts of dwellings uh, and whether there's, again, the, the government was supposed, was funded 
half um, half a billion dollars by the federal government, the previous federal coalition government, to build more houses uh, for Indigenous Australians, uh, and have failed to meet their targets each and every time. But they're rolling out sort of, sort of these. Um, they call them bully beef homes out bush, which which are sort of like demandable type homes, which are quite flimsy, um, not the sort of you know long term housing that people were hoping for, uh, and, and now also, uh, you know I, don't, I think they're hiking up the rent on these on these renters because they're trying to find ways to get money back into their coffers because they're just so far in debt they have no other options but to start picking on the most vulnerable in our communities now. Was there any consultation with the community or even with you about this rent increase? <laughs> no. Um, and as far as I know from a lot of the community members, they basically got a letter in the mail stating, okay, your rent's going to increase from this date on. And they had no consultation whatsoever as to why this was happening. Um, and no real preparation going forward just to know that, okay, I'm they're stuck with this. So there's been a lot of really panicked, concerned, um, you know, residents in, in some of these town camps and communities. And rightly so, they should be very concerned. I mean, uh, you know, this the government was recently, recently sued uh, for not providing housing that was adequate um, for, for human beings, you know, in terms of human rights. And, um, and it's just... I don't know what their thinking is, but it's very, very concerning and it's very disappointing for many. It's, it's, it's just awful, Jacinta. We're going to have to keep on top of this topic. Um, but just quickly before you go, you've just been to Kalkaringi, which is near where Vincent Lingiari led fellow Indigenous workers in the famous walk-off in 1966. And that was the birth of the land rights movement, essentially. There was a reenactment of the walk-off last week. Now, Jacinta, who was behind this reenactment? And how did so many people wind up wearing identical campaign T-shirts? I'll tell you what, it's just one of those situations, you get it all the time, you get it with Gama, you get it with all these communities um, where, where they have these festivals, Labor, even the unions co-opt and try to take over and make it all about them and their achievements and, and Gough Whitlam and how Gough Whitlam poured the sand into Lingiari's hand and and there were boxes of T-shirts being pulled out just before the march and, and dished out to everybody to get on an Uluru Statement from the Heart T-shirt or Voice Treaty, you know, all this nonsense. So they use these festivals and the people in those places to push their own agendas. This is what Labor and the unions do. This is what they did that day because one of the, um, the chair of the Central Land Council actually got up and said that he asked um, the federal, <laughs> federal Labor members if they knew what year it was that the walk-off actually occurred and none of them in fact knew. And it wasn't until Leah Finocchiaro, the leader of the opposition in the Northern Territory, told them it was 1966. So here they are, spruiking, you know, their amazing achievements as a Labor Party. They, they, they talk about how it led to the Land Rights Act, which was... Um, passed. The Land Rights Act was delivered by a coalition Fraser government <laughs> and all these achievements certainly that the coalition have made, but they co-opt everything and they, and they make it all about them and their own agenda. And it was more focused on this idea of a voice to parliament than it was about celebrating the efforts of Vincent Lingiari, um, the Gurindji and certainly the Warburi, who are my family, um, who, who, stood up and decided and, and took a stand in our in our point in that point in history um, to you know 
to have equal the equal pay decision, which was also uh, implemented by a coalition government in the end. Jacinta, so I, I just, wanted to. It's, it's I, hilarious. <laughs> Jacinta, I wanted to get round to asking you about uh, Shaquille O'Neal and his, uh, his, his butting into the, uh, the constitutional changes for a voice to parliament, but we've run out of time. Maybe we can chat about it next time. <laughs> thanks so much for your time, Jacinta. No worries. Thanks, Fred. That's Northern Territory Senator, J Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price, who's doing more for Indigenous wellbeing than all the inner city woke virtue signalers put together. Now, before I go, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese must have thought he was a hit with the kids when he sculled his beer at a Gang of Youths gig in Sydney a couple of weeks ago. The cheer from the crowd must have convinced him he had the pop culture part of the job in the bag. So he naturally never stopped to think there would be any backlash against his decision to enlist American basketballer Shaquille O'Neal to help him sell the idea of an Indigenous voice to Parliament to the nation. The backfire is worse than a missed slam dunk to lose the game in the final seconds. Was O'Neill enlisted simply because he was black? Isn't that a bit racist? Greens Senator Lydia Thorpe said O'Neill was, quote, putting his nose into business that has nothing to do with him, unquote. You can say that again. Albanese needs to stop kidding himself he's down with the kids. He's a career politician, not a celebrity. Well, that's it from me. It was great to have your company. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow at eight o'clock for the great Alan Jones, and I'll see you immediately after him at 9 p.m. Good night.